bienvenidex to Merendiando from home as we continue to be in self-isolation. And by the magic of Zoom, today our special guest is Carmen Aguirre. Carmen Aguirre is a Chilean-Canadian author, actor, and playwright. She has won multiple awards for her work and has over 80 stage film and television acting credits. She's a core artist at the Vancouver Electric Company Theatre and co-founder of the Canadian Latinx Theatre Artist Coalition, or CALTAC. She has written and co-written over 25 plays, and she's the author of two best-selling memoirs, Something Fierce, Memoirs of a Revolutionary Daughter, which was also the winner of CBC Canada Reads in 2012, and its best-selling sequel, Mexican Hooker Number 1, and my other roles since the revolution. We talked to her about her work, politics, and being an artist based in Vancouver. And because this is merendiando, we had some meriendas, or some snacks, before we talked. So Monica, what did you snack on? I had the same snack as last time, so a little Peruvian chocolate. What about you, Camille? We love consistency. I had a delicious Colombian treat. That's like dulce de leche with bocadillo de guayaba. So like guayaba paste, dulce de leche. Oh my freaking God, I've never tasted anything so good. It's from Vélez. It's, it's wild. I found it in the back of my pantry. I'm very thankful. But you know what the real treat was? Talking to Carmen Aguirre. So get a snack and let's get started. Have you spent a lot of time in Zoom, Carmen? Well, in the last few weeks, yes, I would say I have. Yeah. Did you know Zoom before this? Um, yeah, so I'm part of Electric Company, um, Electric Company Theater. I'm a core artist at Electric Company Theater. And uh, of the full, let me think, one, two, three, four of us. Yeah, four core artists, only one of them lives in town, and that's me. <laughs> Yes, that sounds right. Two of them live in Toronto and the other one lives in Victoria. So we do spend a lot of time on Zoom anyway. Mm -hmm. Certainly more now, you know, in the last month. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of theater work kind of already started migrating to digital platforms before this. Like, you know, just to make things happen across distance and other reasons that might be artistic, but uh, this uh, time has been uh, really pushing everybody online, I guess. What's been, how, how are you uh, right now with everything that's going on in BC, uh, like in terms of your specific, even premier, like your own policies on how you're gonna deal with this pandemic? Like how, how are you as an artist dealing right now? I'm doing fine. I mean, I grew up, um, I spent most of my young life in South America, living under ultra right-wing dictatorships. So that meant a lot of like uh, state of siege, em- uh, states of emergency, lots of curfews. So yeah, I'm totally fine. And it hasn't really affected me. Like I'm a very lucky person. It hasn't affected me too much financially because at this time of the year, I, I was slated to spend time um, more at home doing a bunch of writing and administration. Also, I'm going to be in a play, like it's probably the only play that has gone forward and it's all moved online. And we go into rehearsals. This is with Rumble Theater. It's a script by a Chilean playwright called Guillermo Calderon. And this script is called B, like the letter B. And it's the Canadian premiere of this play here in Vancouver. And of course, you know, it had to move online. <laughs> I love that play, by the way. It's oh, such a good script. That's it's interesting so beautiful. that you love it. I don't. 
Tell me about that. I feel mixed about it because I hear people love it and some people don't. I mean, I loved reading it. I've never seen it yeah, performed. Right. I loved reading it. Okay. Uh, well, it's, um, and I say that I don't with a huge respect towards the writer. I mean, of course. I think he's an incredible writer and I think it's a very well written play. And it's an honor to be in it and to tackle it. Uh, so I guess what I what I'm saying when I say I don't is I find it uh, incredibly cynical, pessimistic, um, nihilistic, and not a accurate, if I may be so bold, portrayal of youth resistance in Chile, mm. uh, especially since the uprising that began last last October. The character that I'm playing is actually written as a man, and I'm going to play it as a man. And he's supposed to be about my age, right? Um, I'm 52, so maybe, yeah, I would say about my age. And he's a guy who's been around since the 80s in the resistance, except that the way he's written is that he's a terrorist. And as a person myself who was in the resistance in Chile in the 80s, in the MIR, I don't know a single soul in the MIR nor in the um, Frente Patriotico Manuel Rodriguez, which was the other armed uh, movement in Chile at the time, who would ever have done or said the things that this character is saying. Mm -hmm. And I've checked with a lot of people <laughs> in doing my research for this play, a lot of people who were in both movements, and they're, they're all just shocked that they're just like, anybody who would be speaking like this man speaks, so he has lines like, uh, oh, it doesn't matter how many people die, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing, right? Which, of course, we were completely the opposite, right? If there, were ever, if there was ever any talk of a target, it, it could only ever be a military target. Any, any uh, talk of civilian casualties, was, it never happened. Like it, and if anybody came into the movement with that kind of talk, they would be immediately expelled. So uh, the only two movements I know in Latin America that have ever spoken that way are the Shining Path in Peru and the FARC in Colombia, right? So I, those are the reasons why I don't like it. <laughs> so not, not the actual writing. I love the writing. I love the characters. I, I, I love the complexity of the script. I love his skill. I have a real problem with what he's saying or trying to say. And mainly it's an, it, just the absolute cynicism of the script, that there is no hope and that these three characters who call themselves revolutionaries are actually terrorists, which is completely and utterly inaccurate and an insult. Having said all this, I'm really interested and excited about working with this team of people, of doing a Chilean play. It's a very Chilean play, like the way that it's written, like he's really captured the way Chileans talk and, um, you know, and bringing this point of view into the room. I have a, you know, I've been in touch with the playwright and we are trying to find a moment to connect because I will say everything I just said to him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. ask him what 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 he was thinking or what what 
you know, he was trying to say or what kind of research he did uh, because, um, so anyway, so that's what I'm preparing to do online. We go into rehearsals on April 27th and I'm- Oh wait, it just dropped that the whole play, you're moving it online. Yeah. That totally looks like it could, it could work. Yeah. yeah I, I think it'll totally it. work. I mean, you know the play, but it's basically three characters preparing to bomb a bank, right? And so it's all very top secret and they're in a safe house preparing to do this. So it kind of like makes sense online. Yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bringing it to the very contemporary now reality of how things are Done. To hear you talk and to talk about that you were part of the resistencia, how do you feel? Because I, as an immigrant, sometimes I'm afraid to go back home and be my true self, which is a queer woman. How do you deal with fear? Because even how you were talking about, like, I'm going to go say this, how I feel, and not feel the fear or anything of, like, putting your opinions or your what you want in front of you. It's so impressive. So, like, how did you manage fear over following what you believe in or like what you need to be there for people? Well, I, I lived, I lived in a state of chronic terror the entire time that I was, that I was in the MIR in Chile. Um, and, um, we all did, right. Uh, a lot of people didn't make it, uh, in terms of died young from, you know, cancers and all kinds of diseases that ate them up from the inside. And they themselves said that they felt that the, the reason they got so sick was because of living in a state of chronic terror. There were a lot of close calls that I had. And I think that I'm an extremely privileged person. And it's kind of like my job. I mean, I have this platform as an artist, right? So I see it as my job and my responsibility to speak these things. The only time that I felt, I mean, when I go to Chile, I don't feel afraid because I'm nothing to them, right? Like I'm not involved in anything. I'm not uh, part of any movement. I'm not an activist. So th who cares about me, right? They have much bigger fish to fry in Chile, right? <laughs> and so it would be incredibly self-important and uh, egomaniacal of me to go, oh, if I go to Chile, they're going to come after me, right? The, the one time that I did feel afraid was when my my first memoir, Something Fierce, Memoirs of a Revolutionary da Daughter, which I took a lot of time to think about and to write uh, because I knew there would be consequences, uh, and there were. And what happened, so, so the day that I felt, it wasn't a day, it was a few days where I felt like, oh shit, this is it, <laughs> was um, the book was chosen to be part of the debates for Canada Reads in 2012, right? And so, and it ended up winning, which is amazing for the book. But on the, on the first day of the debates, uh, which, you know, were being streamed live on the internet. It's a huge deal. Million, literally millions of people watching live, right? In the first five minutes, one of the people that was defending a different book basically said, Carmen Aguirre is a bloody terrorist. I don't know how Canada ever let her into this country. And when this happened, I was in Ottawa doing a play and Harper, Stephen Harper was uh, the, the prime minister and he had kind of uh, passed these anti-terrorism laws, right? Most, mostly to be used against indigenous activists in Canada and environmental activists in Canada. But I was in Ottawa by myself in a hotel that whole week, like literally alone. My son was with my mother at that time and he was quite young. I think he was like six years old. I was like two blocks away from Parliament Hill where Harper was. 
It's always very intense yeah. being around Parliament. I it's it's a yeah. charged space. Yeah. So I was like, I went into this a bit of a spin, going, "Oh shit! Now they're coming for me!" Right? This is it. And I mean, my main concern when I was writing the book and when I published the book was my son. I'm a sole parent. I'm raising him alone. And I was like, okay, if I go to jail, that's really irresponsible parenting, right? Like who, who's going to be his parent? And being a grandparent is different than being a parent. So that was my big concern. Of course, nothing happened because again, anybody who looks into me will realize within about five seconds that I'm not an activist. I'm not involved in any kind of movement. I'm not involved in anything, right? So really they have bigger fish to fry. But that's the one time that I have felt like anything even remotely close to fear, right? After, you know, I wrote that, that book and that happened. And of course, it led to some really good debate on the on CBC uh, during the, the Canada Reads debate because it led to the debate of what is a terrorist, right? And I remember, I think it was that the following day, wow. I think it was the following day that I had to be flown to Toronto and I, I was doing my show every night, this one woman show every night called Blue Box in Ottawa. So during the day, they flew me to Toronto to do an interview, a quick interview with George Strombolopoulos and in which, and he had this show called, oh God, I think. This hour, the, an hour like with that. George. Yeah, he had yeah. a talk show that was very uh, good and very uh, popular. Yeah. And so he flew me in just to do a quick interview in which I was supposed, he basically asked me, what is a terrorist? And why do you consider that you are not a terrorist? So oh I, God! And so then <laughs> I, I mean, no, I don't, know, I don't know that he worded it that way, but he wanted, to, yeah, okay, just to be clear, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so then I, he, he, I think he was defending me basically. So he really wanted to give me a platform to say why I'm not a terrorist, right? And so I said, um, you know, I basically said a terrorist is a person who targets civilians for political or religious purposes, and that is absolutely not what the Chilean resistance did, nor is it what the Jewish resistance did uh, during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it really created some great debate. You know, having said that, there's been moments like, uh, I think I was touring with the book. That's right. I was touring with the book and I was in London, England, and I had a bunch of interviews with the BBC. And there I was, you know, because the BBC has so many different shows. You do a whole bunch of different shows at the BBC. So I went to one... Uh, it was the international BBC. And this woman sitting across from me who's doing the interview and who presents is very quote unquote progressive, right? Like a, like a full on hippie, like this white hippie woman, right? Um, purple hair, the whole bit, like the tattoos and the piercings and, and, you know, young. And she says to me, this is live and there are hundreds of millions of people listening around the world. And I'm like, great. And she said, what we really want to know, and she kind of got kind of angry, like, like uh, started attacking me, is Ooh, love it. did you kill people? And how many people did you kill? <laughs> so of course wow. I went, I froze because I was like, oh, here we go. Like, you know, now I'm going to get arrested in, in fucking England. Where I, uh, of course, many things went through my mind. One of the first things that went through my mind was like wanting to say to her, would you ask me this if I was a person who you were interviewing who had been in the Jewish resistance or in the French resistance? Probably not, right? But I thought if I say anything like that, it'll sound like I killed a bunch of people and I'm trying to cover it up. <laughs> Truth fears nothing, Carmen. Yeah, so she, so she uh, probably wanted me to say something like that, right? Yes. 
He probably wanted me to say, why are you asking that or blah, blah, blah. And so then I totally shut her up by saying, absolutely not. I've never killed a soul. And there was nothing she could do. All she could do was just move on to the next quest. <laughs> and also God. that's the truth. Of course, I've never killed a soul, right? I know, but just it's, yeah. the way people frame yeah. resistance, especially colonizer countries like freaking England, <laughs> and, but also just culturally how we deal with resistance. I have a, a lot of questions about that in terms of Canada like what our culture of resistance is our culture what I mean as culture creators we have a lot of responsibility but also opportunity to shape that my question is to you Carmen like what do you think the culture of resistance is in Canada if you could speak to it and can it so-called Canada as we know it yeah I, again yeah. it depends what you're referring to as Canada because uh, most I'm going to say most but probably all but I'll say most, my indigenous friends in Canada uh, don't consider themselves Canadian. Of course. Right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that the, the kind of resistance that, would so, that, that that's happening at the Wet'suwet'en is something that is interesting to me to look at, right? And of course, I support it, right? I've been asked, you know, even when I was on the book tour with that first book, uh, quite often people would ask me if I believed in an armed uprising in Canada, if I believe that that should happen, right? And I would always say no, because, you know, there needs to be a whole kind, so many things that have to be in place for that even to make sense, right? I think that if anybody walked around Canada right now going, hey, we need to take up arms, uh, they would be labeled crazy. They have been, <laughs> that is historical. Um, yes, but I mean, like right now, I think that that is not in any mm -hmm. way, shape or form a way forward, right? And I don't think that's the way forward, for example, in Latin America. So what do I mean by that? Certainly, you know, the MIR, for example, that I was in, took up arms against the Pinochet dictatorship, which at that time, like I'm talking about the 80s, was considered one of the most repressive uh, uh, dictatorships in the world uh, by many people. There are all kinds of guerrilla organizations that, that took up arms uh, in the 60s all over Latin America that were really... Uh, uh, how do you say that, inspired by the triumph of the Cuban revolution. Uh, but if we looked at what happened at, at the turn of the millennium in Venezuela, for example, right? That was a revolution that was not an armed revolution. It was a re revolution with arms. Same with uh, the revolution in Bolivia, right? Evo Morales, uh, who was there for 15 years, right? That was a revolution with arms. So what does that even mean? It means that both Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales who, let's be super clear, are, I'm not talking about the individuals, I'm talking about the mm -hmm. movements that they represented, right? Those movements had the army backing them, right? The Bolivian army and the Venezuelan army backed those movements, right? So those are revolutions with arms. And I think that's when there was a change for many people in terms of, oh, okay, guerrilla warfare is fucking hard, right? It's absolutely devastating. And I can say this as a person who has participated in it. It is almost indescribable how devastating it is. I'm not saying it wasn't necessary or it might not be necessary still. Of course, duh, right? But now that we have these two examples, right, of the Chavista revolution and uh, the revolution in, in Bolivia of revolutions that were backed by the armies of both those countries, that's a lot better. <laughs> And 
quote unquote easier than guerrilla warfare, right? Because when you when you engage in guerrilla war- warfare, what has happened historically is the amount of deaths and torture that accompanies it, you know, of mostly poor people, right, is horrible, right? Uh, so any if there's any way to not go that route, yeah. uh, that is fantastic, right? Don't get me wrong, I believe in systemic change, right? So I, I understand that there are places in the world, including in Latin America, where guerrilla warfare might, might still be the way to go. But I was very inspired, as were many people around the world, by the examples of Evo Morales and Hugo Chavez. And again, I mentioned those two names because we're, we, we are familiar with who they are, but let's be very clear that they uh, represent mm-hmm. huge movements of people, mm. right? Okay. Uh, yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, okay. That leads me to a question because all the three of us have roots in countries that are south of here and we all live here and uh, we're all culture makers here. And I guess I'm interested in what is giving you hope right now as an artist located mainly in Vancouver. What gives me hope? I mean, one of the things that gives me hope always is, for example, the 2000 comunas in Venezuela. I think that's, those are real uh, triumphs of the Chavista you know, revolution. And to be very clear, I am pro-Bolivarian revolution. I know that's a very unfashionable thing to say, uh, and I have no problem saying it. Uh, I am with the six million Venezuelans who voted for Maduro because they did not vote for Maduro, they voted for the continuation of a revolutionary process that has been yeah. uh, terrorized by the United States with its sanctions, right? Um, so one of the things that the Bolivarian revolution has done and continues to do, which I find very exciting and gives me so much hope and inspiration is the comunas, right? There's about 2000 of them, and many of them in Caracas proper. It's basically uh, groups of people, uh, mostly working class people, get together. And for example, like there's a, a neighborhood in Caracas. And as an aside, I've been to Venezuela, so uh, I can argue with lots of people <laughs> if they feel like arguing with me, because I actually have been to Venezuela. So if there, you know, there might be a, 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 a poor neighborhood in Caracas where the neighborhood has taken it upon themselves to make that neighborhood a commons of sort, of sorts, right? And so they kind of take care of everything and take care of each other with the support of the Bolivarian revolution. So I like to follow that and like just to see where that's at as often as I can. Obviously it's difficult to get that kind of information, but I try. That gives me a lot of hope, the comunas in, uh, in, in, in Venezuela. What gives me a lot of hope is that the Bolivarian revolution is still there with all of its mistakes, with all of its imperfections, with all the levels of corruption. Absolutely, there's so much work to do, but the fact that it's still there, the fact that Cuba is still there, right? Again, with all of its imperfections, with all of its mistakes, it's still there. Uh, what gives me hope is the uprising in Chile. What gives me hope is the fact that Argentinians elected Fernandez, who, who you know, got rid of Macri. I'm very saddened by what happened in Bolivia <laughs> with the coup there. I just want to ask you a follow-up question then, because I asked you what, and I love that the answer is really very interesting. I asked you what comp- gave you hope as an artist, and you pointed to really 
specific social justice yeah. movements and justice movements. Yes. Um, so clearly it just illustrates that your art is really involved with justice movements. Would you agree with that? Sure. I mean, um, I'm going to be very honest. If we're going to talk about uh, the theater world in Canada, I, I'm not very hopeful about it or haven't been, not because of the content that's being created. I think there's some amazing content that's being created and I admire so many uh, Canadian theater artists. I mean, I would, I wouldn't be, I mean, hello, I work with Canadian theater artists all the time, right? I love them. I'm um, dismayed by the cancel culture, the deplatforming, the um, neoliberal identity politics, the um, censorship and self-censorship that's going on. And it's a real climate, you know, that of fear, right? Uh, which I kind of cut through and... Uh, I don't care and I just say what I want and I do what I want. But again, I'm a very privileged person. I'm able to do that because my, the, the two groups of people that I care about in terms of what they think about me are my friends and my comrades, neither of which are in the theater community, right? So I love, I love all the people that I work with in the theater community, otherwise I wouldn't work with them. They're my colleagues and they mean a lot to me. But if they all get pissed off at me because I say something, <laughs> I'm not going to lose my community, right? Because my friends are actually not in the theater community, right? And my comrades are not in the theater community. So I have two lives, right? And I consider my non-theater mm -hmm. life my real life. So it's a really privileged position. And so I, I, I can actually say out loud what so many other people are saying privately but are afraid to say, and I don't blame them for being afraid, right? Because all their friendships are in the theater community, for example, right? I'm also in a privileged position because I'm old, right? I'm an elder. So I've been, I've been at it for like 30 years and uh, I'm not a 25 year old uh, person who, you know, is just starting out and who's going to burn a whole bunch of bridges if she just comes out and goes, right? And says what I'm saying, right? So that's also a privileged position. Going off of that. So yeah, not a lot of hope for the theater. Uh, what did you, did you say industry in Canada, ecology in Canada? I don't think you used either of those words, but would they accurately? Well, I guess, I guess there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear yeah. that I hear about a lot, right? In terms of um, this uh, climate of cancel culture, deplatforming, hyper-fragmentative yep. identity politics, uh, th there's fear. Yeah. Well, okay. My question is, what do you think the abolition of class and that fear have to do with each other? Well, the thing is, is that class has nothing to do with identity politics, right? Okay. Because, uh, 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 people don't walk around saying, people walk around saying, hi, my identity is nothing X or my identity is fill in the blank. Right. Um, but don't, people don't usually walk around saying, hi, my identity is working class or hi, my identity is middle class. Uh, because the whole point of class is about, so uh, is about class relations, right? And as a person who's on the left, uh, as opposed to a liberal, right? I'm not a liberal. I, I, they're very different concepts. I'm really not a liberal. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, I'm a leftist, yeah. Uh, as a person who's a leftist, my, my, my analysis is that the end goal is the abolition of class, right? And identity politics, the way it has been uh, taken over now by neoliberalism, 
is uh, it, it seeks to be included into capitalism, right? Um, and so it arguably can be included into capitalism, right? Race or gender, right? Whereas capitalism will never include the proletariat, right? And most liberals are not working class, right? Most liberals are middle class and up, right? And, and they probably won't admit that they're middle or upper middle class. They'll, they'll probably say they're not, right? But so it's, it's, there's no kind of pride, as it were, in walking around saying, I'm working class or I'm middle class, right? Uh, certainly there is in terms of race and gender because the identity politics that we have on the table in the theater community is an identity politics that lacks a structural critique of capitalism and seeks this kind of representation and inclusion in capitalism. So that's why social class is not discussed when it comes to identity politics in the theater community. And I think that the, one of the main reasons that social class is not discussed is because most people in the theater community, and when I say most, I don't mean 90%, I mean more than 50%, right? Are middle and upper middle class, right? So, you know, <laughs> there's not a lot of plays being written out there in the Canadian theater scene and I'm, I'm sure this goes for the whole world, but since we're talking about Canada, right? By working class Canadians. There's some for sure, but there's not a lot, right? And uh, a lot of the characters that we see on our stages uh, are not working class, right? Um, they're not, right? So then why do you choose this medium? Why is this medium something that you keep engaging with? Well, it chose me, okay. right? Um, so it's something that is, I mean, it has to be your calling, especially if you're going to stick with it for as long as I have. I was offered um, a full scholarship to study medicine in Cuba when I was a teenager, when I was 16. And I'm not going to lie, um, there are many times when I go, that was a mistake to not take it. I didn't take it uh, because, uh, I mean, tell me, trust me, it was an incredibly difficult decision uh, because I, I wanted to join the Chilean resistance. And it was, it was imperative for me that I, that I do that at that time. The year was 1984. If it had been another time, I think I would have, I mean, I know I would have taken it. Um, so that, that was definitely a turning point, right? To go, oh shit, I didn't take that. Fuck, right? <laughs> and I have, ever since I have been part of the theater community, which has been since 1990, it has been very, very clear to me that my skill set as a storyteller has had to be put forward to serve the community, which is uh, my point of view anyway as a socialist. Um, whatever skill set you have, you use it at the service of the community. And so I knew that I was going to put this skill set at the service of the Latinx community. I mean, very specifically the Chilean community, but more broadly the Latinx community, which certainly in, the, in 1990, was the poorest demographic in Vancouver, for example. And I grew up, quote unquote, in poverty in uh, Vancouver, right, as a Chilean exile in the 1970s, where we literally had nothing. And my entire community, we were all uh, janitors. We had a great time, don't get me wrong, right? Like all the kids, we'd go and do the janitor work with the, with the parents after school. It was fun. But we were fucking poor. So those are the stories that I knew I wanted to put on, on stage in Canada. 
uh, I consider, you know, that a lot of the theater that I see in Canada to be, to have a liberal politic. And so the other thing that I'm, I've always been interested in is to put content on Canadian stages that has a unabashedly leftist point of view. I, I made this weird joke about my dad because I'm, I'm queer and my parents don't know. And I was saying that I figure out that my dad hates communism more than gay people. Right. That I started realizing that I can be like, I'm gay, but I love capitalism. My dad will be like, we're still good. <laughs> like I started to realize until I moved from Mexico and started living on my own and like paying my own bills that how much of this idea of how government should run, it was mostly not because of me but because of parents. So a lot of the ideas, like you're saying, Evo Morales, I, he went to Mexico, right? Yeah. And I remember that was like horrifying for my dad. Yes, I'm sure. Like horrifying. So like I have a lot of my friends like Argentina, Uruguay, like all those people telling me like, this is what's happening in our governments. And then talking to my dad and I'm like, oh no, like we know too much now that we can never talk about politics. So everything you're saying, I'm just like, I know those stories, but not from that perspective. I know those stories from a perspective that is like, it's wrong and it's bad and we don't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, just that yesterday I was on WhatsApp talking to my two best friends in Bolivia because I lived in Bolivia when I was um, a teenager. And part of our uh, front, because I, I was there with my uh, mother and stepfather who were running a safe house uh, for the MIR in Bolivia. Um, there was an ultra right wing dictatorship in Bolivia when we lived there, um, this guy called Garcia Mesa. And uh, our facade was that we had to look like, we had to basically kind of be part of the 1% in Bolivia. So that's what we did. And so I was sent to this school where my classmate was the son of Garcia Mesa, right? And, uh, you know, the sons and daughters of the generals were in my class. So two of my best friends at that time are like ultra, ultra, ultra right wing <laughs> and part of the elite of Bolivia. And I'm still very, very, very close to them. So yesterday I was talking to both of them on the WhatsApp. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying, Monica. Like, um, I'm, I'm, I just laugh. I mean, I'm on the floor laughing with these two because the things that come out of their mouths and they know where I stand, but the friendship is so strong that it doesn't matter. For example, they were both saying things like, oh, and they of course took part in the coup against Evo Morales and they're very proud of it, extremely proud of it. Yay, we financed it, we did it. Oh, thank God, we got rid of that motherfucker, right? And so they're so, so, so anti quote unquote communist, because again, they probably don't even know what communism is, right? That they believe that the Chinese government oh, yeah. created the virus in order to do away with as many poor gringos as possible. They're like, those poor gringos, oh my God, are a poor United States, right? They're dying because of those terrible communists in China. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, no analysis, no nothing. And both these people are very smart. Don't get me wrong, right? Like one of them is an economist. He has a PhD in economics and teaches econom economics at, in Santa Cruz. The other one is equally, equally learned, right? They're just extremely right wing. I don't know why I went off on that tangent, but uh, I understand. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, and it just, one of the most revolutionary things you can do is, is be a human being with other human beings, regardless of oh, yeah. 
their doc indoctrination, I guess. Yes, and, and, and they truly believe what they believe because they are actually protecting their interests, right? They are part of the 1% of Bolivia. They'll never admit that, right? But that's mm -hmm. what they are, right? Uh, they are part of the 1% of Bolivia and they will do anything and everything which has been proven over and over and over again historically uh, to defend their wealth which includes control of the land, control of the government, control of anything and everything, right? And so Evo Morales' huge crime for them was that he was interested in redistributing the wealth of Bolivia, right? I mean, the last time I was there five years ago for this, uh, our 30-year high school reunion, which, which I went to, you know, I kept saying to them, we'd be walking down the street, and they were in, like, absolute frenzy because Evo Morales was still in power. <laughs> and doing very well. So I, I just spent the whole time laughing hysterically because I, I find them funny, walking through the city of La Paz as they would rage and rage and rage. And I would be, and, and I mean, of course, and I would go on and on about how much I love Evo Morales. But one thing I did ask them, both of them was, okay, let me, let me get something straight here. Both of you still have your mansions. You both still have your, your very well-paid jobs. You both are extremely wealthy. Evo Morales has done absolutely nothing to take away your mansion or your job or your money or anything. So what's the problem? I knew what they were going to say, but I wanted to hear them say it, right? And uh, so one of them said, the problem is that the other day, or might have been a few months before that, I was walking down the street and... Um, I won't say the word he, I won't use the slur that he used. So, uh, and I met an indigenous person, but he used the slur, was walking, you know, I was walking down the sidewalk and he was walking towards me and he was a broom vendor. So he had like 10,000 brooms around his, himself, like selling these brooms. And he wouldn't get out of the way for me. And he just stood there. And I said to him, slur, fill in the blank with the slur, get out of the way, I'm trying to pass. And the broom vendor said, oh, no, no, I'm not getting out of the way. You're getting out of the way because we rule this country now. And so then both of them started to rage and rage and rage. That's what's happening. Wow. Don't you understand? You can't even, do you know how to dance, right? You know how simple yeah. it is to just slide to the left. Like, why? <laughs> yeah, so I just said, all I want to know is where this broom vendor lives because I want to go and kiss his feet and then make a monument for him in the square. Absolutely. But um, I forgot the point. But the point is. <laughs> the point is, don't talk to your <laughs> No, but I, I, there's something I think about because now when we do our check-ins as family check-ins about what the pandemic is happening because my sister's in Texas, I'm here and my, my parents are in Mexico. And it's such a weird thing to, to really check in and be like, how's your government doing today? Instead of being like, how are you doing today, mommy? It's like, what did Mexico do? It's, it's weird to navigate, to know who's getting money from the government and who's not in the world. Uh -huh. Like who's getting that support and who's not. Yes, right. Yeah, I mean, when, I'm, when my family asks about it, I'm like, and they're like, wow, you're so lucky to be in Canada. Your, your prime minister is a feminist and you get like $2,000 Canadian dollars a month. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but like those $2,000, we stole from you. Uh, we mined it out of your earth, one. Two, that's a really low bar. My prime minister is a feminist. I'm 
sorry. <laughs> like just because <laughs> Canada has this facade of uh, progressiveness in terms of neoliberalism does not mean that we cannot critique it. And it's very frustrating for me when conversations stop because Canada is a cool country. Uh-huh. I get it, but I will say it as an immigrant. I know. I'm happy. I know I'm we here. have different like, perspectives, yeah. It's such a weird thing because I will understand that. And then, but for me being from another country and seeing people from my country right now, I'm like, like, it's this thing of like, where are we safer? Even though it's not the best. Yes. I don't deny that's true. I think that's yeah. super true. But I also think our positions are different. I like have a Canadian passport. I was born here. I have the privilege to say what I'm saying without the same repercussions as you would have if you were to say it. Okay, so I would, you know, I we had prepared a lot of questions and a lot of them were actually about your work itself, like your, your pieces and your project. The first play I ever wrote was called In a Land Called I Don't Remember. And that, that was produced in 1995. Then it was Chile con Carne. Then it was a play that I kind of co-wrote, was like a create, collective creation with the Latino theater group, which I ran here in Vancouver in the 90s. Um, and that play was called Que Pasa with La Raza A. Then it was Refugee Hotel, I guess. Then there was another play that I kind of co-wrote with the Latino theater group called Spicks and Span. I don't remember the order of the plays, but I guess then there was Blue Box and then there was Broken Tailbone. And I, I also co-wrote uh, at two plays that were adaptations of Eduardo Galeano's work. One was called Dreams of Reality. And uh, it, we, we meaning uh, an artist called uh, James Fagan Tate and another artist called Sonia Norris. The three of us adapted this book by Eduardo Galeano called um, The Book of Embraces for the stage. And then James Fagan Tate and I adapted another Galeano book called um, Walking Words for the stage. And we called it The Body Says, I am a fiesta. And then with the electric company 20 years ago, we adapted Georgia Amado's uh, Dona Flor and her two husbands for the stage. So anyway, I could go on here. <laughs> but Manuelita, is it the same character Chile con carne than Refugee? It's similar. Yes, it's a, yes, I would say. So what was happening when I did Chile con carne, which was dramaturged and directed by Guillermo Verdecchia, that was 25 years ago. You know, we, we had all these great characters in Chile con carne, right? Like we kept going, oh my God, this, this these characters are, are so great, like Juana the Chickens or whoever else, right? Uh, and, you know, we want to know who Joselito is. And of course, Chile con carne is a one-person show. So, yes, uh, the, the Refugee Hotel is definitely a continuation or kind of like a, not even a sequel, but a prequel to Chile con carne, right? Because Chile con carne picks up after they've, you know, it takes place after they've left the hotel. And uh, so I would say Refugee Hotel is more like a prequel. And, you know, there's like 11 or 12 characters on stage. I think we were talking yesterday, like kind of preparing for this, and we were talking about Refugee Hotel as a cornerstone of Latin Canadian theater work, that a touchstone for, I think, a lot of people in our local Toronto community who are Latinx. We like know about Refugee Hotel, and not only do we know the play, we know a bit about its production story, about the cast that was in it. It's like very much a touchstone for narratives, like uh, storytelling on stage about Latinx like experience. And so it's kind of part of a legacy that I feel that a lot of people are walking down. Like we, 
you know, we're gathering community here in, in Toronto, at least, uh, of like Latinx theater creators. We're trying to, to build the foundations and an ecology that's healthy. And I know that that's something that you're really involved in in Vancouver. So my question is twofold. One, we would love to hear about Coyuntura, just like about your experience, maybe, and maybe what you left the, the space with, left the gathering with. And then I think it will tie into my second question, which is what is it like to be an artist in Vancouver? Yeah, so Coyuntura was incredible. I mean, it's something that we had envisioned for a long time and were able to get uh, funding from the fantastic Canada Council to do it. Um, it, uh, it was like a game changer for us because it, it's us meaning Caltech, the, the you know, Canadian Latinx Cedar Artists Coalition, because you know, it was the first time in Canadian history that we had something like that, an international Latinx theater gathering. And, um, you know, we, we knew it would, we, we would, it would have to start kind of small. Like, uh, of course, our, our ideal scenario is like there's 200 Latinx theater people from across North America and beyond. Yeah, right. But uh, let's just, you know, see who shows up kind of thing. So it was incredible to have people, you know, like Bea, you know, all in the same room, right? Bea, right? We, we don't need to even say who she is, right? Beatriz Pisano, who, who founded and runs Aluna Theater, right? With Lina de Guevara, right? Who's an 86-year-old elder who was the first Latinx theater artist in Canada, right? And who started Puente Theater in Victoria in the 1980s. Next to Evelina Fernandez, who is a living legend, Chicana theater artist who started the Los Angeles Theater Company and the Latino Theater Company in LA next to, you know, Nancy Garcia Loza, who co-founded and runs Alta in Chicago, right? Next to Barbara Santos, right? Who runs the Theater of the Oppressed Center in Berlin and who came in from Rio, which is where she's from, and who trained with Augusto Boal for many years um, and was Augusto Boala's right-hand person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on here. Um, so that was incredible for us. Just like all we wanted was to create time and space for people to connect. That's all we wanted. So every night we all went for dinner together and we spent hours and hours and hours and hours just talking and eating. And Kaltak members, like we'd all kind of look across the table or down the table at each other and just be like, this is it. This is all we wanted. If we could just get all these people around a table and just talk, right, for hours because they have nowhere else to go because, you know, they've come here for this reason, then that's all we care about, right? And that's what happened. And I know that a lot of connections were made. Um, and even just being able to facilitate some, something like this, right? Like a woman called Monica Sanchez, who's a renowned Chicana playwright in the United States, is currently teaching at a university in Colorado, in a small town of Colorado, where like she feels incredibly isolated, right? It's very white. It's very, she just feels extremely isolated. So she flew herself up for that weekend and she was beside herself just, yay, I get to be around Latinx people eating and talking. We're like, we're so happy we got to facilitate that. We're so happy, right? Or somebody like uh, Natasha Napoleão, who's a young Brazilian actor in Edmonton, who also feels very isolated in Edmonton as a, as a Latina artist. 
and she found her way to conjuntura, right? And she was also just like, oh my God, I'm sitting around a table talking to people like me. So it was incredible. It was, it was you know, we, we, our ideal scenario was to do it every year, right? <laughs> um, and just get it bigger and bigger and bigger. So then my second question is, uh, in your opinion, what is it like to be a theater artist in Vancouver right now? Or what is it like for you? It's great for me. I mean, Vancouver is my hometown. It's the only city I've ever lived in in Canada. Um, I love it. Uh, I have extremely close friends here uh, uh, and, you know, friends that are not in the theater community. <laughs> uh, my family's here. My son is from here. Um, like he was born here. It's a really good base for me because I do a lot of my, like I, I do my writing here. I, I, you know, it's a good, good base for me. Of course, I've many times been told that I should actually live in Toronto, and uh, that's probably true career-wise. But also, I'm um, I, I consider myself a very West Coast person in the of the Americas, right? I'm from Chile, which is West Coast, right? That is to say, I don't know that I could live without the ocean um, and the mountains. And you know, when I lived in Bolivia, of course, I was not on the ocean, but I was in the middle of the Andes Mountains, so. Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's great for me, and I love the theater community here. It's it's I love being part of Electric Company. Yeah, it's great. Um, and just to finish, a personal thing of mine. Uh, you were in the L Word. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was because I rewatching it because gay, and and I was like, oh my god, it's Carmen. <laughs> yeah, the L Word. That was so fun to shoot that. But the thing is that I was supposed to be like a guest star, like on two of the episodes. And I ended up looking kind of like an extra, which is fine with me. I don't care. I still got paid um, because they kind of um, there was like these, these two episodes that took place in jail, in, a, in, in the women's jail, which they uh, completely cut those entire episodes because the, the episodes themselves, they just felt weren't working like the writing or I don't know. They, I think they felt it got a bit too camp. Oh. for the outward like it got quite camp and they were great we had so much fun we shot for like I don't remember how many days but at least a week we had so much fun shooting these like hilarious scenes in the jail in the women's jail right? oh, that sounds fun <laughs> which in the end which in the end those episodes never even made it into the actual show which is too bad because we had such so much fun shooting them and there was some really great stuff in them. Like really, they hired these amazing actors. Um, so I thought I wasn't going to be in it at all in the end. And to be totally blunt, I've never watched it because I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to watch it. So I can just send you all my DVDs. Oh. <laughs> There's ways, if you want. Uh, and our, our question that we ask all the time to close up our podcast is, what is your favorite merienda snack? Oh God, let's think. Well, it depends where I am. I would say there's nothing, nothing like the Chilean once, which is how we call merienda, once. And it's because of the bread, Chilean bread, <laughs> which I think is the best bread ever. So you basically like all sit down at around five o'clock and you have tea, Chileans drink a lot of tea as opposed to coffee, for example. You have tea. Oh my God, the best is tea with condensed of milk. Of course it is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the tea with the condensed milk and the fresh bread from the bakery, 
with like the cheese and uh, the staple diet in Chile is avocado because it grows everywhere. Like, you know, my grandmother had this massive avocado tree in her backyard, for example, so, and we call it palta. So like, it's always bread with palta and like fresh cheese and like the tea with the condensed milk, like my, my mouth is watering. Right, oh. me too. <laughs> And then, and then another big deal in Chile is um, homemade jam. So everybody has like homemade apricot jam because everybody has like an apricot tree in their backyard. So yeah, you also have the jam. Oh my God, it's so good. Mm. Yeah. Good answer. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk with us and to share some oh. of your brain space with us right now. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I hope I hope that I, I don't know if I rambled too much about too many different things. So, <laughs> and I'll, I'll I'll give you the titles of of a book that I just read, and then the one that I'm going to start reading. Yes. If people feel like reading, we love reading. This incredible book that I just read is called The Many Headed Hydra. So, The Many Headed Hydra. Sailors, Slaves, Commoners, and the Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic. Oh, as someone who's born on the Atlantic, I'm on board. Yeah, so it's basically this incredible book that tells the story of literally dozens, if not hundreds of uprisings that took place during the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, that's really important. And, and I don't know how to pronounce their names, but it's by Pete... Peter Leinbach and Marcus Redeker. So I just finished reading that, which was extraordinary and inspiring and moving and informative. Now I'm going to start reading this book. It's called Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants Ooh. by my friend. She's a very dear friend, Nandita Sharma. And so she makes a very strong case. I haven't read the book yet, but uh, that's what the book is about. My understanding of it. I shouldn't say what it's about. But uh, I, I, again, I think uh, it kind of um, tackles neoliberal identity politics and really calls for a commons as opposed to a sovereigns. That's my understanding of what that book is about. And I'm going to, and she's done it shitload of research um to write it so i look forward to diving into that one well that was a merienda for the brain yeah thank you so much Carmen. yeah thank you thank you this podcast is recorded in toronto or dogarondo the territory of the anishinaabe nation the wendat nation the haudenosaunee confederacy and nations recorded and unrecorded we are deeply thankful to these nations for stewarding the land so that we might live in peace and respect for each other. As it is outlined in the Dish with One Spoon One Pop, that all people who live here, settlers, indigenous folks, and others, must adhere to. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theater with the support from the Metcalf Foundation, the Late Law Foundation, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Toronto Arts Council. Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Schwellness, with Sue Ballant and Gia Namens. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Camila Diaz-Varela and Monica Garrido. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheatre.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Follow and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Miigwech and Yawangoa.